Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Really quick before we get started, I want everyone to know that as of right now, tickets are on sale to see me on tour doing comedy to the general public, no longer just a pre-sale. Milwaukee, August 9th. Minneapolis, August 10th. Nashville, August 15th. Birmingham, Alabama, August 16th. And Athens, Georgia, August 17th. All on sale right now. Do not hesitate. JenKirkman.com and click tour. I see the Here we go. I Seem Fun, the Diary of Jen Kirkman podcast. I think it's episode 281. I don't really give a fuck what episode it is. You will be able to see it. Um, We're going to do a major rebrand, restructure, re-everything. I'm here in a new studio. Um, We've got producer Mackenzie here. You don't have to say anything. She's just waving. Um, But you're welcome to as well. (laughs) And um, I will be... With a new podcast network, I am changing the name of the podcast. It is going to be called, I wonder if I should just, you know what, I'm going to, that's going to be a surprise. Why am I giving it all away? Um, It'll be basically the same, but you know, again, I'm trying to be a little more structured. We'll have a new theme song. We'll have new at work. Oh my God, it's great. So here's what I wanted to talk about today. I made my list of things and and go with me here. I'm going to go on a few different journeys. So I got an email from someone who wants my opinion on flight attendants who think they're stand-up comedians and if it's annoying. So I started thinking about my thoughts on that and my thoughts on how we're all just desperate for connection, especially if we're in somewhere like a plane where we have no control. And then I started thinking about the internet because I thought about all of my years. It's my 10-year anniversary on Twitter. And I thought about how that's changed me as a person for better and mostly for worse. And I thought about my age and how in my 40s I didn't have the internet and my friends and I really did connect and I have beautiful letters that we used to write each other in high school. I, I want to talk about how I feel like I'm more stupid now because I've been forced to have my brain go into these small sound bites. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to read some diary entries 
Oh, yeah. And also the article that a young man, I guess he's Generation Z, wrote about having seen Heathers for the first time and he didn't, in quotes, get it. But I don't think he even gets it's beyond that. He doesn't even get how to culturally comment on satire and how to put things in historical perspective, which is usually what people say when they want to get away with racism. This is not the case with this. And then I'm going to read a really embarrassing essay I wrote in college when I too thought that I was able to satirize Melrose, not even satirize, just critique Melrose Place and that everyone involved must be a bad person. And I might read a bad poem. So this is what you have in store for you today. And that is how my brain works. That's the rabbit hole I went down. So somebody emailed me and said, Jen, curious on your thoughts, on flight attendants who think they're stand-up comedians. And he gave me an example. Um, I'm going to YouTube. This is classic I Seem Fun, where you're not going to be able to hear it, <laughs> but I'm just watching it. Um, it's not up yet. But he said, uh, or actually, I don't know if it's a man or a woman. I'm sorry. I didn't. I uh, Once again, I take the name off, so I don't say the name. If you had a flight attendant who turned safety instructions into a tight five, would you appreciate it or be super annoyed? Um so here's my take on it. Oh, yeah. So she's saying, if you do decide to leave, you will not be allowed access back on board. Here at Frontier Airlines, we like to keep up with all the latest fashion trends. In the event the flight becomes a cruise, all you lucky people get your own itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. And she's putting a, you know, air vest around her. Minus the itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, and you get no polka dots. Once you're outside the aircraft, pull down sharply on the red tab that's on the front. Or for those of you who like to make life difficult, you can blow on the red tube near your shoulder. Um, so on and on. And she says, and if by chance yours does not inflate, grab your neighbor and hold on for dear life. So it, to me, it's crazy that a flight attendant would say, in case this doesn't inflate, hold on to your neighbor for dear life. I think it's fucking amazing. I am always looking for moments in life when I can feel connected like that. I, that's what, you know, I'm always railing on this podcast against small talk. I don't want to go, you know you've left your house in the morning, you've had a fight with someone, or you've woken up crying, or you're really happy, but whatever it is, you're never just what you say when you go to get coffee. I'm good. You want, I, I would rather just tell, I feel like I'm lying or just like, why are we even bothering? Why don't we come up with something else to say? Um, that's why I like in Australia where they say, how are you going? It doesn't make any sense. And nobody, just everyone's like, yeah. So I enjoy someone who's making a joke about death on an airplane because it's, quite possible. I mean, it's not quite possible at all, but it's, 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 a, it, we're completely, we've lost control at that moment We're we're, we're putting our life into someone else's hands. And I, I think in the back of everyone's head, even the, the most non afraid to fly person's head, they're thinking, well, technically, you know, I can't swerve. This is not my own car. I cannot run out of, get out of the way, you know, an anvil is falling. As you know, those, that always happens in big cities. So those of you young kids listening and live in small towns, that's when you move to the big city, there are always anvils about to fall out a window. It's just, no one ever tells you that. So she says, um, so I think that's great. I think there's an, that's what I like about this versus small talk. There's an acknowledgement that we all might be a little scared and that honestly, you can do all these safety instructions you want, but a lot of times with plane crashes, you don't get to the point where you're blowing into your tube or you're politely lining up where the lights are along the floor. I mean, I think there's a sense of you have to have a sense of humor about it. And the jokes are actually pretty good. 
And I'm not thinking of myself as a comedian in those moments. I'm thinking of myself as a passenger. You know, I can't expect the world to conform to my, what I think a good joke is, or that's hacky, or we've heard that before. The, the other people on the plane aren't comedians and they may be tickled by it. And if they are, that's usually when I sit there and I go, I'm working too fucking hard at comedy to be clever. This is all the people want. But the thing is they don't. When you're in that situation, that stuff becomes really funny. I become a totally different person when I'm on an airplane. I remember I read an article a few months ago go about people who drink on airplanes in the morning when they would never drink in the morning otherwise. And it's this suspended reality. Um, just for a moment, my friend wrote an article, um, about how he loves cruise ships. Um, and, uh, he was saying that Michael Ian Black, I can't find the, uh, I can't find, it. I think he wrote it for the Sunday times. Yeah, back from July 3rd, 2018, I have it here, cruises and why they are so uncool. And I remember him saying something in it about there's this silent, tacit understanding that, you know, if this thing goes down or if anything happens, we all have we all have each other. There's a heightened something. It's why you might cry watching a movie on a plane, but you don't you wouldn't watch that same movie on the ground and cry. There's just something it, it's sort of like your defenses are down. And, and that's how I feel on airplanes. And I, and I like that. I like that corniness. I think there's, I like when things are uncool. Um, I wish I could find this part, but anyway, yeah, there's something about it that, that I think is great. And this is what he says in his essay. Um, so he was traveling by himself. Um, cruising is an activity of togetherness. One goes to be with people. You can certainly spend plenty of time alone on a cruise liner as I did napping daily in my stateroom or sitting by myself, staring out the rendezvous windows toward the horizon. Um, in what I hoped was a sexy forlorn way, but aloneness on a cruise ship is something one has to make efforts to achieve. It's not the natural state. All week long, people leaned into each other, touched each other and talked. Most of the conversations I overheard involved food, blah, blah, blah. Um, Close quarters among guests and crew demand constant interaction, which results in one of the best qualities of a leisure cruise, civility. For a week, I never heard a single argument. I never even heard a raised voice. People treated each other well, and I can't count the number of times I heard guests asking crew members questions about their lives, their time at sea, their families, their adventures ashore. Everybody seemed to care. All this onboard civility is probably not an accident. Perhaps it is even a low-key necessity. No matter how much you dress up a boat, it is still in the end a boat. And as we all know, boats are vulnerable vessels. At our mandatory pre-cruise evacuation drill, a chipper fire marshal reminds us that even a megaship is only one misplaced cigarette butt from disaster. <laughs> People are perhaps a bit kinder to one another when they know their vacation could end in a cramped lifeboat fighting over pelican scraps. So I think that's how I feel when I fly. If they want to make jokes, have at it. As someone who used to have a terrible fear of flying, I would have fucking loved when I was a little kid if the flight attendants were being silly. There's something in it that lets you know it's okay to relax. Like in a weird way, if there was, if it was really such a dangerous thing to fly, we'd all be getting on in a very tense way and we would have to take courses and they would be like, I'm not fucking around here. You know, it lets us know that for the most part, we're going to be okay. And even if we're not, we just laughed. So, you know, I, I think it's fantastic. And, and it got me thinking too, how actually I really love the, the parts that I'm on the road that drive me crazy a lot of it is the travel but I do really love um connecting with people and I was thinking about 
as it's my 10 year anniversary on Twitter, this notion, it's both false and true that the internet connects us and, and, and doesn't, you know, like I would argue anyone who says people are just on their phones now and, and look and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but they're connecting with other people. I mean, the world became really small to me once I was able to talk to people in other countries online. And as someone, again, who had all these fears and anxieties and thought the world was this big place, things get way less mysterious when you can interact with people from other places. So I love the Internet for that way. But I was just looking through um, my old tweets from like 2012. I actually there's a thing called a tornal. You used to be able to get it and they would print it out in book form. And I looked at my tweets in 2011 and 2012. And I'm like, this is a completely different world. This is before Russian bots. This is before Donald Trump. It was just laughing and joking with friends. I remember there used to be a thing on Twitter where you could tell people who were hooking up because people used to meet all the time on Twitter or like friends of friends would become, I mean, I met boyfriends on Twitter for sure. And it's like friends of friends would meet and you would see them tweeting each other. I've definitely been guilty of this. I've been guilty of observing it and having it happen. And you tweet with someone for a while and then it's like people notice you're always talking to each other and then you'll both be off Twitter. Like if you live in the same city, it's always easier. But especially if someone went to someone else's city, you'd both be off Twitter for like six hours, six to 12 hours. And people would tweet, oh, I think these two are hooking up because they they both haven't tweeted in six to 12 hours. That's how simple Twitter used to be and how fun it used to be. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't watch the patterns of two people I know that might be hooking up. There's so much noise and so much stuff coming in. And it wouldn't have dawned on me to follow a politician on Twitter. It's like, why would they be tweeting? And that, you know, I'll just get my news from, you know, the blogs or a newspaper or the New Yorker or something. But Twitter is where we go to have fun. And then they found us. They fucking found us down there. And of course, it's such a hotbed for Russian bots to invade Um, and try to stir up things. And now it's just, and I don't mean it's no fun because, you know, like I'm joking around with a guy who is gay and he's like, I'm such a big fan. I know you don't need hashtag just another fag. Sorry, trigger warning. And I wrote, I, I love all the fags I can get. I mean, this is how gays and women talk to each other in real life. And back then we thought, it was, you can talk that way on Twitter. Now, I don't say that word all the time. If a gay friend says it and wants me to join in, like, that's great. I don't say it on my own about gay people. But it's like, that nuance was just sort of understood. And it's gone now. And I'm not saying, I want to say the F word. That's not what I mean at all. Um, But, uh, you know, even stupid stuff, like you could write... uh, I don't know. I I can't give an example, but I'm seeing all these old names of friends I used to tweet with. And now they've blocked me because they're so crazy about Bernie Sanders. And, you know, it's just so sad how different everything is. And um, yeah, okay. I wore I I wrote this. Um, I swear what I wear around the house looks like a fashion forward photo shoot ensemble. But if I wore it outside, it'd be 5150 time, meaning I'd look insane and someone would tackle me. I mean, I guess you could still say that now. But, you know, it's like I would have to double check and think about that. Like, well, I don't want to offend anyone who's been 5150 and blah, 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 even though like three of my friends have been and, you know, God bless them all. But, you know, it. I'm not saying I don't want to um, 
be more tolerant and all of that. I, I've actually learned so much by being on Twitter. I learned what a white privilege bubble I completely live in. I completely thought being a woman was the same thing as being a person of color and without even taking into consider. Well, I did take into consideration. Well, obviously, Jen, there's women who are people of color, so they have it worse than you. I knew that. I just there was so much I've learned. It was like an accelerated class in in talking to people that maybe I would, would normally talk to or whatever. So I think the internet is beautiful, but the point is, is that we've always been trying to make connections with one another. And then suddenly this website comes around that's like, okay, you can make connections, but you have to say it in 75 characters or whatever it is. And I think that that's the hardest part is, is like the way we used to connect. We don't even get to say how we want to do it anymore. It's, it's part of this thing and everything goes so fast. And I think that's why podcasts are so successful. And this one, like I'm a comedian, but this isn't funny at all because people are like, I just, can I relax for a minute and listen to someone talking? I don't need it. Jokes or quick sound bites. I do think that no matter how much, whoever it is out there, you know, Mark Zuckerberg who started Facebook just to rate women's looks, which I don't know if you knew that, but that's how it started. Everybody is if people are just thinking, no matter how they are telling us to use social media, we come back with something new. So now there's podcasts and, and it's a slower, more relaxing and connecting and listening. And, and I don't have people coming in here and correcting every word and screaming at me. And so, you know, in a way, Twitter used to make me feel like being on an airplane with, with a flight attendant making jokes. It felt good. If you were lonely at night, you could see other people online or people you thought maybe had this great life. But if they're tweeting at midnight on a Saturday, then I guess, you know, it's okay. And it almost became cool. Now it's like this badge of honor to tweet about, I'm sitting home alone on a weekend night. I mean, it's not weird at all. I remember when that shifted. I remember I used to tweet a lot on weekend nights because I worked so much and those were my only free nights. And people would be like, what a loser. What are you doing? And then that that sort of change. I don't know where those people went. I feel like those people were never cool. But um, I had a point. Of course, I forgot what my point is. Uh, oh, so I'm thinking about this. This, uh, And I'm going to talk a little bit about Julian Assange, too. But it's going to lead me back to this essay about Heathers and these other things. But first, before we do that, I would like to let you guys know that you're not always just going to be online. You're going to be around people and you really don't want to smell bad. I mean, really, that's the, that's the biggest battle in getting people to like you. I think I'm sure you have great ideas. I'm sure you're really fun. I'm sure you're gorgeous. I'm sure you're interesting, but you can be all those things. But if you smell bad, then game's over. No one is talking to you. Um, and I love our sponsor, Myro, and I actually have it and use it. Myro is making deodorant better, like 10 times better. Not the drugstore stuff with like these weird gross scents and all natural that doesn't really work. It's a new kind of deodorant that lives up to your power poses. And it's a good scent and a good mood. They go together. Well, they go together like good scents and good moods. Myro delivers obsession-worthy, naturally effective deodorant that looks as good as it smells. They make their natural deodorant with a custom blend of essential oils that release over time to keep you fresh and barely powder to keep you dry. Barley powder to keep you dry. It's like, what's barely powder? And I like that. So it's time-released, and you don't need chemicals to get into time-release. You know, a lot of other deodorants have aluminum in them. That will give you the cancer. This formula is hardworking, long-lasting, no toxic anything. No toxic masculinity even. Zero percent aluminum, 0% parabens. Ingredients are clinically tested for safety. 
Choose your scent and the color of your case. You get a refresh every three months. You pop it in your cute little case. It's delivered straight to your door, conveniently timed for when most people run out. You can switch scents, press pause, or stop literally anytime you want. So it's a refillable case, and it's got mood-inspiring scents, and it's good for you, and it's good for the planet. And because the case is refillable, Myra refills reduce plastic waste by about 50% versus typical drugstore deodorants. So you're doing, you're doing good and feeling good. And I love it. Now, you can get 50% off your first order and get started today for just five bucks. Visit mymyro.com, M-Y-M-Y-R-O.com. And, oh, fuck. They didn't give me the fucking promo code. Well, I'm going to make it up. Is this professional? Is this professional commercialing? Get 50% off your first order and get started today for just $5. I'm going to make up the offer code. Visit mymyro.com slash fun and use promo code fun. Now, I'm telling you, these things smell really good. You can pick all different kinds of scents. I have sort of a a lavender scented one. Again, mymyro.com slash fun and use promo code fun. All right. And lastly, one thing that is amazing about the internet is if you need to go to therapy and you cannot afford traditional therapy and you do not have time to go driving around somewhere, maybe you're shy about meeting someone face-to-face, maybe you work during the hours that therapists normally work, which, you know, a lot of times they work right when we're working. So it's like, when am I supposed to go to therapy? And you don't really want to be seen. You can't leave your classroom or leave your job for, you know, over an hour. So... I love Talkspace. This is one beautiful thing that's come out of the internet. Talkspace.com. They have more than 3,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use offer code JEN to get $45 off of your first month and show your support for this show. That's JEN and Talkspace.com. It's online therapy. Take care of your mental health in a really affordable and convenient way. And here's the thing. You're going to give your preferences. They're going to match you with one of 3,000 plus therapists that same day. And if it doesn't work out, no problem. You can switch. You can send the therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, or video messages anywhere, anytime. And you will hear back daily, five days per week. This is not the usual thing, people. In, In life, if you have a therapist, you see them once a week, you go home, that's it. And you don't talk to them until the next week. If you texted your therapist, they would be like, um, you can't do that. So this is why Talkspace is amazing. And all you need is a computer with an internet connection or the mobile app. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Again, it's that time of year, spring, everyone's running around. Oh my God, we're getting ready for summer. It seems like everyone's happy but you. Why do you feel like a flower that hasn't bloomed? What is going on? What are you stressed about? You don't even have to have this big back history of all this horrible stuff happening. Therapy is for everybody. It has nothing to do with, I'm clinically depressed or I'm this. It can be that. It can be you need to talk something out with someone and you need a little extra support. So that's why I love Talkspace. And you don't have to wait for your next appointment to talk about what's on your mind. And for a little extra, you can always schedule a live video session if you're having a tough time and need some extra support. One month of therapy on the platform costs the same as one face-to-face session out there in real life, as we call it. Talkspace.com. Use code Jen to get $45 off of your first month. Also, there is Talkspace for teens. With teens, uh, with Talkspace, teens can message a licensed counselor from their phone, computer, anywhere, anytime. You don't have to drive around and commute and schedule things for your kid. You can help them take care of their well-being in an easy and affordable way. Talkspace.com slash Jen.
and use Jen at checkout. All right. Okay, everybody. So let me just say this. I know. So Julian Assange got arrested and I normally don't talk politics on this podcast. So sometimes I do when I'm like ha- having a complete freak out. And let's just be very clear about something. He's been hiding in an embassy for seven years. I heard a report that he was wiping feces on the wall. Um, he hasn't showered. He could use some Miro. And the reason he got indicted was not, I know, I know, I know people want to insist on this, was not because of the war crimes and things that he published on WikiLeaks. In this country, we protect whistleblowers and we protect, uh, like if you saw the movie, the, um, the post, they, somebody leaked papers about Vietnam to the press. They published it. Now, the person that gave it to the New York Times can get arrested, but the journalists are protected. It's such a beautiful part of our country. So if you want to leak anything to the press, you can, and the press will not get in trouble for publishing it. That is why they do it. And so that's great. So a lot of times people feel things need to be exposed. That's why they call it the fourth estate. The government does not control what the press does. Now, are they at odds sometimes? like you've never seen it right now with Donald Trump, literally calling them the enemy. People have guns. They're going crazy. People have been shot. Um, Okay, so he was arrested because he was helping Chelsea Manning hack into a government computer. And they released secrets that, yes, does our country do bad things? Yes, it does. But they were releasing things that would putting people in harm's way. There's a responsibility to when you are releasing government secrets. He he insisted on not redacting some names of some Afghans. Anyway, and then going forward, so, but people on the internet are arguing, it's not that, that's what they tell you. He was indicted for hacking, you know, or being part of a hack, but it's really because he exposed these secrets. No, that the indictment does not read anything about publishing. The indictment reads about interference and hacking. So, Everyone can believe that secretly the motivation was because they don't like that he exposed this. It's not. And you can believe that. But if you need to believe that and have him as your hero, you have to ask yourself, what what kind of revolution do I think I'm having? Like the real revolution is happening right now where people that are not like you. I'm talking to the white young men out there. People that are not like you are suffering every day under the government. If you want to be a woke person who realizes that their government is not always on your side, then there are things that are actually happening right now. I wouldn't get into taking on the entire war machine if I were you. It's sort of a fool's errand. I'm not saying it's not great. It's unimportant to be aware of, but you literally can't change anything and you're in way over your head on that. You can only change that by voting, but you can help people who are suffering every day, like trans people being banned from the military. You can show your support there. Women having abortion rights being taken away, racism, sexism, homophobia, every single fucking day, there's little things you can do about that. But this whole, anytime I see someone that has time to waste on worrying about Julian Assange's well-being, I know already, hashtag privilege. Also, he is an alleged rapist. So this is where Twitter is not fun anymore because I don't know if they're men or bo- or like Russian bots. And, and if you sound like a bot, that should be, you know, something that you should be ashamed of. So they're coming at me 
and they're like, you just want the military war complex. I'm, oh God, can I just explain that I used to be like this? I was once so riled up about drones, Obama's droning people, that I was insufferable to my friends. And really what I needed to do was slow down, get refocused, and think about things that were actually going on in the world around me in effect. I mean, not that it's not important. You get what I'm saying. But there's so much nuance with all of this that it's being lost on everything because people don't understand basic civics. And I hate to sound like an old Republican, but people are so distrustful of their country And yet they're lining up with exactly what Trump is saying. So it's like you're distrustful in the wrong way, if that makes sense. The fact that our our press is protected and and there is like a process to go through if you want to be a whistleblower, it's happening right now. So 12 people in the White House are technically acting as whistleblowers while they smile in Trump's face and work for him. So and they are being protected by the law. So we do we are a nation of laws. We are, for the most part, set up for goodness. And so this notion that that Julian Assange who's not an American who's working for the Russian government is somehow on your side is just it's absurd to me, but it's because you don't actually know how things work so you can't have faith in the system because you don't understand the system. Um Right now, I feel like Donald Trump is stacking the courts and he's got AG, AG bar in his pocket and it scares the shit out of me. I'm not like the system's going to totally work all the time. That's not what I mean. Anyway, so it brings me to the futility of just screaming at each other on the Internet and how I am so glad I didn't have it growing up. I'm just so glad because my opinions were so bizarre. They were so out there. They were so ever changing. And I am. I'm just glad that I had time to process my feelings by myself. And I don't even mean politically, but my friends and I were so emotional. And I don't, I'm glad that we had time to write and we wrote and we thought and we didn't just put it into tweets. And now it would be, I don't even know what we would have done if we had Twitter, if we would have written, I'm depressed and just sent that out on a Wednesday night. I have no idea, but I miss, you know, my friends and I used to pass notes and I actually have notes from my high school friends in my hand and old diaries. And, you know, a lot of times we would like our parents would would put, you know, restrictions like you can't use the phone for five hours tonight. And or my friend's sister would be on the phone and there were no cell phones. You had to like share a phone. And if you were super rich, you had two lines in your house. But my parents, we weren't a two line family. And so. You know, I would write notes with my friends during during class. And if it wasn't just texting, which is I don't know if that I mean, again, I'm not a teenager with texting, but there's something that if you have time, you can actually feel and write your feelings. So this is an example of a note I wrote to my friend in fifth period and picture this like this doesn't really go on over texting, you know. Um, sorry, we couldn't talk during lunch. It's hard with ears everywhere. I'm not saying what I'm saying is important. I had a good time at the dance. What a workout. Anyway, if you get suspended today, oh, what a joy. Um, but I will feel bad. But this weekend or Monday or Tuesday or whatever, I will drive and we will ride so happily with my expert. I've had my license four months driving skills. I'm having a shitty day. I'm in a bad mood for the strangest reason. The police lady annoyed me this morning when I crossed the street. I feel fat. I emphasize the word feel. I have a stomach ache. It's my period is late. Um, maybe I'm pregnant. Maybe I'm kidding. There's no possible way. 
because I was a virgin. Just asked a question, math. Now I have to listen to the answer. Why did I do that? Um, as for my new crush, strange as it is, it's going well. I asked him what we were doing tonight in rehearsal. It wasn't just a clever ploy to talk to him. He told me it was all of act one, which is awesome. We get to do our dance. And he brought it up. He was like, Jen, we get to do our dance tonight. I've been practicing. And then... Uh, anyway, he was like, I'm looking forward to tonight. We'll have so much fun. I was so happy. Dis despite my shit mood, that made me happy. And now that I write it down, it doesn't feel like a big deal anymore. So I'm depressed again. <laughs> I'm sitting in back of class now. Um, and Jeremy is asleep. That's cool. Actually, it's not. I'm not even being sarcastic. Why was today so long? Do you know? Help. It's not even. Oh, and that, that's where the note ends. I went through quite the emotions here. Um, this is from another friend. This is a, during another period. Jen, last night I was on the verge of calling you, but I couldn't use the phone. Uh, I almost called my ex, but thank God I stopped myself. I read an article on depression yesterday and I read some symptoms and I have every single one. Scary, isn't it? Well, enough about my problems all the time. I mean, this is like, we were just processing life and there was no, I looked up an app and I could talk about depression. I mean, if you read an article about depression and you had all the symptoms, then you were just sitting there knowing you had the symptoms and there was really nothing you could do. I guess you could talk to an adult, but, but we never wanted to go that far. Five more months till we graduate. Wonderful. But what happens after that? I hope if anything is wrong, you know that you can always tell me. I just want to remind you that I'm here for you if you have any problems, because in a little while... All of us will be gone. This town will just be a little corner in our minds. And when I think of that, I think, why shouldn't I speak to my ex? But I can't. Um, sorry, uh, I've changed a lot. Sometimes I don't believe if it's a good change. But uh, I don't believe I'll ever talk to my ex again. Too bad because he was my other best friend. Bye. <laughs> I mean, just like, bye. That's what we're thinking during class, you know, and I'm still friends with this woman to this day. And she, she was right. You know, all of that stuff will just be a memory. And she, um, it's interesting because we had lunch and we had dinner a few months ago and she said, I don't know if you knew in high school, I was sort of anxious and depressed. And I was like, I don't remember that. And, and I read these notes. I was like, Oh, it's amazing how, when you get older, you just kind of look back on the good memories. Um, how much time do I have left? Or how much did I do? Uh, 32 minutes. I've only done 32? Mm -hmm. Oh, shit. Jesus. Jesus. Um, okay, so I'm going to read some more high school notes. Because, again, like... And maybe you guys are like, Jen, you're totally wrong. We do get all this stuff out with texting. But, um... I don't even know who these... It's weird when you don't know who the people are anymore. I worked today with Kathleen. It was fun. We talked about Jay. She told me about all these people and Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> there, there was a punk rock Dunkin' Donuts where the older kids hung out, and I guess I got gossip about that. She broke up with Bill, I think. Who the fuck is Bill? Maybe it's time for another Baskin-Robbins employee to go out with a... Oh, I say I have someone's last name. Oh, okay. I had a crush on this guy's brother. Um... Dave called me tonight. He asked me to go to Boston with him tomorrow. I'm unfortunately happy. I don't know what that means. I feel depressed. What's anything all about? That was, uh, that's how I was feeling on January 4th, 1989. Um, well, let's see. Mr. Manson broke his hand and couldn't play piano in the show. He broke it a weekish ago. He got mad at the cast and punched a wall, and his hand was discovered by doctors to be broken. <laughs> That's a note I wrote to a friend of mine. Um, 
God, I love these. They, they make me so sad and so happy all at the same time. So let's see if I have more. So I'm just so glad that I got that I got to do that and that I didn't have to worry about, I don't know, whatever, being an influencer or, or I just think what I'm what I'm really missing is that space, that long, that space of just having room in your head and in your heart to to just talk to people. And I think even though everyone on Twitter acts like a maniac, I think we are for the most part, trying to connect with one another. But I'm just so grateful that I got to sit at home and feel feelings and write in my diary and think. And it, and it, ugh. So now that brings me to this article about Heather's. And it, so the movie came out in 1989. So I was 15. So it was exactly in my wheelhouse. And I remember when it came out, I didn't, the language they were using was not language that any teenagers use. And my friend John Ross Bowie wrote a great article about this, which is why the movie has a bit of a timeless quality because saying, what's your damage and how very and all that, nobody said that. Those were made up teenage lingos. Um, And so it doesn't seem dated when you watch it. It just seems bizarre. And it seemed bizarre to us too at the time. And in the movie, um, you know, people are shooting each other. They end up with they end the movie by blowing up the school. Now, this is before I don't really actually know the history of guns. Um, I know that's why you, if you tuned into this podcast for the history of guns, you're going to be so, sorely disappointed. But I don't know when all of this automatic rifles and all of that stuff became a thing and became, I suppose, legal or we all have to bring one to Burger King because we feel threatened. But guns were still sort of uh, not really a thing in the mainstream or People weren't shooting up schools in the late 80s. And so this was shocking to us. And it was satire. And blowing up a school was not something to aspire to. And it was a little shocking when when we saw it. And we felt conflicted. We felt like this is a... And then we had to learn about satire and what a dark comedy is. And that it's supposed to make us feel. And it's supposed to make us go, oh, that's fucked up. So that we can then settle into knowing oh, we're probably not sociopaths, but we relate to these teenagers. And that's the thing is they're worried about who's popular, who's not. And yet they're also doing things like shooting each other and blowing up a school. It's it's like the Sopranos. Hey, I'm Tony Soprano. I'm whacking a guy here. I'm in the mob. I go to therapy. I have panic attacks. It's dichotomy. It's tension. It's drama. It's how it works. We could just watch a movie about teenagers and then they work everything out. And we could just watch a movie about really violent teenagers who blow up a school. But both of those would not be satires or comedies. And so you put them together and now you have a dark comedy. And you're supposed to go, oh my God, I recognize myself in these teenagers. But the darkest parts of themselves that they're exploring, I I have that in me, but I'm probably not going to blow up a school. So Somebody wrote, I'm 24 and I just watched Heathers for the first time. Yikes. Now, here's the thing. This was published on the rap.com, W-R-A-P. This is a big, big, big website that lots of people read. And I don't know why they let someone who is do this without 
Like he had no self-aware context that he wasn't, he didn't understand that, that it was a satire and he didn't understand, you know, he didn't talk to anyone from that time to find out what, what did we think when it came out? It was just, this is problematic. I'm looking at it from a different generation by, and this is one of those times where it is not like when I watch It's a Wonderful Life every year and I go, oh, God, I love this movie, but oh, the black maid and how they're treating her. It was wrong. Oh, well, it was the time. Yeah, the time was wrong. And, you know, then it gets into even further. That's the only roles for black people in the movies, blah, blah, blah. That is different than what I'm talking about here, where this is a dark satirical comedy that may not work today because we actually do. I mean, that's what's even more crazy about it is we do have shootings and people blowing up schools. So, yeah, we wouldn't use this anymore as satire because it, it's on the nose and it would just be upsetting. So you have to find another way to satirize. Um, but back then, this worked. So. This is why I'm glad when I was in my 20s, I did not have access to the general population because I don't know if this will hurt his career as a writer. And maybe it won't hurt a damn thing. I have no idea. I mean, I don't even think people get paid to write anymore unless it's for TV. <laughs> but it's it's I'm just so glad. And I'll, I'll explain why after I take this kid apart. <clears throat> I'll tell you that I was in the same place, too. And I think it's a rite of passage. So. Less than 15 minutes into 1989's dark comedy, Heathers, I mean, at least he labels it that, a rebel teenager played by Christian Slater pulls out a gun and fires blanks at two homophobic jocks, a move that would get him arrested today. Well, it would also get him arrested in the 80s. Um, it's, we weren't just shooting blanks at people. He would have been in big trouble. But this movie was not about the law and the order of the life and you know the parents were supposed to be idiots everyone was an idiot and the kids were running rampant my roommates and I sat there with our jaws open was this supposed to be funny actually yes because in the 80s when my gay friends weren't allowed to come out and people were leaving bags of shit on their doorstep and calling them fags and queers thinking about making the powerful look stupid and shooting jocks with blanks until they, you know, freaked out is fucking hilarious because that's what it was. There wasn't glee. There wasn't this acceptance. There was, it was really scary in the eighties. Homophobia in high school was life or death. It was horrible. There wasn't anyone you could turn to, except maybe if you wanted to think about John Waters or someone older, but there was no current crop of television shows or podcasts about being a gay teenager. There was no gay person running for president. It was completely still underground and it would get you fucking killed or your ass kicked. And I saw it happen to many of my friends. And that's why a lot of guys I know in high school just full on started wearing dresses in support of the gay guys. Not that gay people wear dresses, but there was a lot of cross dressers too, guys that were gay and were just cross dressing to fuck with people. And so, yeah, in 1989, it's actually really fucking funny to fire a blank at a homophobic jock and make him look stupid. We turned on Heather's Sunday night because we wanted to watch something from the 80s. I knew Slater from Mr. Robot and Winona Ryder from Stranger Things. Oh, my God. That's like saying, I know God. He's that guy that um, Ricky Gervais talks about. It's like, no. Winona Ryder is not from Stranger Things. This is her comeback. She's from Beetlejuice. And Edward, she's an icon, a teenage icon. And so is Christian Slater. And I was thinking the other day, are there any current teenage icons that aren't musical theater stars? Like we had Christian Slater and we had Winona Ryder and we had um, Keanu Reeves and 
uh, drugstore cowboy guy, Matt Dillon, and all of the John Hughes movie people and Molly Ringwald and Charlie Sheen and all that. But they were icons because they were edgy and they were rebels. You know, it was like we had 50 James Deans, male and female. And they had a mytho- the characters had a mythology about them and a pathology about them. And I don't know if today who the teenage icons are, if they're, they all seem to be pretty scrubbed up and squeaky and shiny, whatever. Okay. So uh, I'll be seeing this movie next week, by the way, they're playing it in downtown LA and I got tickets. So by the way, I don't even love the movie because I actually don't like a lot of the shooting and stuff like that. It's like, I like, I'm not a huge fan of like super dark comedy, but I get it. I get it. I just thought it was, I just think it's like, you know, it takes me back to the, to the day, but watching Heather's is a very different experience in 2019 teen, a time of school shootings and trigger warnings. The film is designed to shock and disturb. Okay. So what if we find Heather's to be in bad taste? Does that confirm the stereotype that my generation is too sensitive? I mean, you said it, I fucking didn't. I don't think too sensitive. I don't think people who go to school every day with the threat of gun violence are too sensitive. I think I feel so fucking bad for for this, any generation that's going through that. Um, And we're traumatizing kids and it's awful and blah, blah, blah. But you can't find something in bad taste from 30 years. I mean, it's not, no, okay. I had high expectations for Heathers. As a kid growing up in the Chicago suburbs who often visited friends in white households, watching every John Hughes movie felt like a requirement. The High School and Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off is an actual high school in suburban Illinois. And Hughes movies left you feeling hopeful about the future. I expected something similar from Heathers. Well, that's like going to the fucking hardware store for milk. You, it's not a hopeful movie. I, I watched E.T. hoping to find something about humans. You know, like, I, it's, it's not that. Like... What? Like, no. Also, John Hughes movies are so fucking rape-centric. Like, I hate John Hughes movies. They raped a girl in, in Sixteen Candles because she was asleep, you know? I, I think they're all rich assholes. And they the point, and, and in Heathers, the rich assholes are seen as assholes because they're rich. The only John Hughes movie that does it for me is Pretty in Pink. May I recommend from three years ago, I did an interview on this podcast with John Cryer, and we talked about Pretty in Pink. So everyone go into the archives. But... I mean, Ferris Bueller was a fucking dick. I didn't care about his friend and his fancy car. He skipped school with all these. I hated all those movies growing up and I didn't feel hopeful about what makes you feel hopeful about the future, about watching them. And who's watching a movie to feel hopeful? Like go read Deepak Chopra. This what you're expecting too much out of things. Like, what do you want out of stuff? You know, and if you want to feel hopeful, let older people guide you into what we do to feel hopeful. We don't go to dark comedies for hope. For my generation, the way to beat the popular girls and jocks isn't to stoop lower than they are on the moral totem pole. Our technique is to vent on Twitter and let the likes and retweets console you. No crimes required. Okay. If you want to write a movie about getting back at the jocks and the popular girls where people just tweet, good luck. Good luck selling that. What, what, what's the action in this scene? Someone gets on a computer. Listen, venting on Twitter and liking likes and retweets console you. You've literally just admitted to a cultural sickness that you suffer from without knowing it. That will feel empty. But plotting and planning with your friends to undermine something, to undermine sort of a giant... That like they're trying to... It's almost like Ferris Bueller. Like he's trying to undermine the system and so were the people in Heathers. I mean, it was fucked up, but again, it's not a movie about a normal way to undermine the system. 
Okay, I can't go much further with this or I will jab a fork in my eye and I don't even have a fork here, but I have a feeling one would magically appear because I'm that frustrated. Um, Heather's doesn't just deserve a warning because of the shooting. The whole movie seems to take sexual assault and suicide more lightly than it should. One of the best things in the movie is this song, Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It, because they were a teenager killed himself, and they were showing the absurd, stupid adult's reaction to it. Like, we'll make a song called Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It, and that'll help the kids. It was a, it was a dark comedy about how nobody knows how to handle this kind of stuff, and they are floundering idiots, and it's that, that moment when you realize the adults actually don't know what they're doing. I, I can't. I can't with it. I can't with it. Plenty of other movies since Heather's have made the same points with less hyperbole and nastiness. Hyperbole. It was good to see the entire internet take this kid to task. Um, But somebody was like, his editor should never have let him write this article. Which is true. So, you know, I'm going to just say that I used to have these strong feelings about things without realizing that this is a battle I didn't need to fight. So... By the way, I just wanted to tell you guys, last week on the episode, I talked about how my parents were so strict that my mom wouldn't let me go out at night. And on weekends, they would pick me up at 1130 and I'd go home and watch Saturday Night Live by myself on the phone with my friends whose houses I just left and how I was such an innocent kid. My mom emailed me. Hi, listen to the podcast. Jen, I listened to your podcast last night. I'm so sorry we stifled you. I guess I should have skipped that one. We just loved you so. You were and still are a little treasure. I hope your life hasn't been affected adversely. We are so proud of the intelligent and beautiful woman that you have become. Do whatever you want. You have our permission. Love and hugs, mom and dad. I mean, I was like, she's losing her mind. All I do is make fun of my mom for how strict she was to her face. We've talked about it 50 times. <laughs> like I've interviewed her on the podcast about it. So I called her and she goes, I know, I, I know, but I actually, it's not just that I'm sorry that it happened, but I realized I was wrong. And she told me she realized she was wrong. I wish I wasn't that strict, but your father and I didn't know what we would do. And we didn't, we didn't know how to handle anybody. And I was like, listen, if I had a kid, they'd not be allowed to leave the house. So like, I don't blame you, you know? Um, but I thought that was, was very funny, but it's like, again, when it's, it's, again, it's interpreting art, you know, when my mom hears it on the podcast and she doesn't see my face and she's not interacting with me and it's, it's sort of performative. It feels so much harder than if if I'm talking to her in real life and she can see me and I'm happy and I'm just saying, my God, you guys are so strict, like calm down, you know, it's different. So anyway, this is uh, something I wrote about Melrose Place. Imagine if this was published. And I wrote it on a a word processor. It's how long ago this was. I wrote this in 1992, I think, or three. This is the type of thing now that gets published. And I'm not saying that I was ahead of my time. I'm saying this is a bad idea. We can't publish every single thought we have. Like, people are very self-righteous. Well, at all ages. But um, here's mine. How much time do I have left? Uh, oh my God. Perfect. All right. This is, this hurts me, you guys, because I'm going to, and I'm also going to read some of my early 
stand up because it's so embarrassing that that I want to die. So I just want you to really understand that we all go through this and I'm so grateful that it was not printed anywhere. And I'm okay. I'm not gonna read this whole thing, but nothing else matters when you're beautiful. That's the name of this hard-hitting essay about Melrose Place. Picture an apartment complex, a small stucco building with blue and green trim. Winding staircases and balconies are covered in vine, along with well-groomed tropical flowers. The apartments fit together in a U-shape, and each one overlooks the shared kidney-shaped swimming pool. Strangely enough, the seven tenants who live in this building are often out of work or hold minimum wage jobs. Welcome to Melrose Place. Well, what I didn't realize then is those apartment buildings, I live in L.A. now, like, yeah, people who are out of work live there. Like, everything in L.A. has a pool, even like a shit-ass apartment. And they, it wasn't, like, totally gorgeous. And, like, yeah, we just happen to have tropical flowers here. It doesn't mean you're rich if you live in a building that has flowers. And, um, yeah, they probably struggled to pay their rent and um it's not it wasn't unrealistic at all there are many flaws with the concept of the no with concept i didn't put the word the of this nighttime soap opera issues such as poverty sexual differences i don't know what that means harassment and relationships are introduced then forgotten although these 20 something year olds products of the reagan bush administration fear near homelessness in every episode their priorities are those of a 16 year old like i'm not understanding that that's the point of the show it's a fucking soap opera and even though they're they're struggling to make ends meet the most important things to them are their love lives and all like that's life i hadn't lived on my own yet i hadn't realized that yeah, like you you are in, you don't have money, there's issues with your sexuality, you might get harassed, blah, blah. And then also you're like, um, Billy doesn't like me. And do I look pretty? I mean, that I didn't understand that yet, because I hadn't lived on my own. So I, I couldn't even speak to this yet. Um, most often, the main plot revolves around a strange love triangle, while the subplot involves the death of a friend or paying the rent months late. The emphasis of love triangle plots and the de-emphasis of important plots. Like that's my opinion, what's important and what isn't. It's their show and it's a hit. So how can I say what's important? Plots plainly shows the main priorities of these characters are pleasure. Most of these Melrose Place tenants have diplomas and degrees, yet they're holding temporary jobs until their quote, big breaks come. Finding a job in today's economy is challenging. Oh, thank God I knew that. I mean, that's why they called us slackers. The writers of Melrose Place take a very common American situation and glamorize it. Yeah, that's called television. Jesus, Jen. Jake still manages to buy a brand new motorcycle, spend his money betting on pool games and drinking at shooters, although he's currently a carpenter out of work. Billy, who, he's probably putting things on his credit card. I mean, Jen. Billy, who just moved out of his parents' house and has never held a job as a struggling writer. Still, he owns an expensive computer and printer. <laughs> yes! That he has the one thing he needs to get the job he wants. Should he not have that? The writers keep these characters unemployed and struggling for the sake of a decent plot. Yes, they do. In order to keep young audiences watching, half the show must be glamour. Do I think I'm, like, cracking some code that even the... <laughs> Reality is never as bearable as it is on television. I, I remember writing this. Like, I have a distinct memory of my fingers hitting the word processor, clank, 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 and being like, that is genius. Like, I would have loved the internet, and I'm so glad I didn't have it. Reality is never as bearable as it is on television. I would have pinned, tweeted that. I would have been like, guys, I'm blowing minds everywhere. And, and imagine 
I said, being poor is fun when you're young and beautiful. My teacher even wrote, good line. Is my teacher a bad teacher? If I had the internet, and imagine if I was rewarded for that, I'd be a nightmare. Um, Okay. Besides episodes that revolve around money trouble, Melrose Place has had a few politically correct episodes revolving around Matt. He's the only homosexual character on Melrose Place. He's young and boyishly handsome, but is always seen without a lover. Being without a lover is common, but never for the heterosexual characters on Melrose Place. Hey, that's a fucking pretty good point. I'm pretty proud of myself. In fact, most of the straight characters have an overabundance of lovers. Why am I saying the word lover over and over in this essay in college? I'm cringing. Even Michael and Jane, who are married, are often seduced by other women and men. In fact, Matt's character has been reduced to practically a walk-on role. Matt's sexual preference was discussed only briefly in one episode, and the way it was handled was a slap in the face to the gay community. All right, hey, I'm pretty, I'm pretty on it on that one. Um, Matt confessed that his latest mood swings are due to the... Matt and Rhonda were discussing something by the pool. Matt confessed that his latest mood swings are due to the fact that he is lonely. Rhonda tells Matt that she's interested in him. Matt responds by saying if he weren't so depressed, he'd take her up on her offer. So the general public is supposed to believe that Matt is a homosexual who is attracted to women. The network introduced this character to this show in order for Melrose Place to appear politically correct and free of criticism. Matt's liking for women is thrown in for those homophobes out there in TV land who have Nielsen rating boxes in their living room. The network can't please everybody, yet they try to, and it results in inconsistency. Okay, I'm not terrible here. Why do networks settle for airing inconsistent programming just to please the general public? The producers of Melrose Place give people what they lack, money and sex. (laughs) Ah. Episodes that deal with Matt's sexuality without plunging into the deeper aspects of it almost deny the problem. The network certainly does not have a responsibility to educate people. However, it should occur to the producers that quality shows don't work around issues just to keep an audience. What? I mean, I'm like right and wrong. Uh, Although there's nothing wrong with the occasional space out in front of a happy TV show, there has to be a balance. Television shows such as Melrose Place should either stick to fluffy romance issues or really start to tackle society's problems. It's not up to television to solve anybody's problems, but it is insulting when television doesn't represent them in a realistic way. I don't know. I got a B plus on this. My teacher said, uh, he wrote it in handwriting. I have no idea what he's saying. Anyway, it's not good. And I'm glad that I didn't have the internet back then. Um, Oh, God. It's so bad. But anyway. And lastly, I bring you to my first stand-up that I ever wrote. And uh, I had never really... I had not I had not been to LA. I had never really spent any huge amounts of time in New York. So this brings us back to where we started. Ten years on Twitter. Is the internet making my life better or worse? I don't know. I just know it's not that fun anymore. And back then, when I started doing stand-up in 1997, the internet was coming about and I thought people on it were fucking weird and I was kicking and screaming to not be taken into this computer world. And so here was my stand up. It's not funny. 
Oh, it's not funny, but I wrote it out in a notebook and I have the notebook in my hands and I want to die reading this. I don't know about anyone else. This is before I'd ever gotten on stage. So I'm writing it, like picturing myself up there, telling it like it is people. (laughs) I don't know about anyone else, but I like leaving the house. I don't want to do research or like ever work my job from my home. I probably like leaving the house because I live at home, the rotting place where I grew up or lost my mind, whichever. What? Yeah, I keep returning there every time I fail. I've stopped counting. I guess I'm talking about my parents. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know kids whose dads are rock stars and they're they're saying... Okay, I don't know what is going on. Kids whose dads are rock stars will say, what are you doing with your life? And I'm like, my dad's boss isn't named David Geffen. My dad's boss is called The Man. Anyway... I I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, New York City is just L.A. but with snow. At least in L.A., everyone admits they're bullshitting. Theater in New York City is like Filene's basement if L.A. were Filene's. I literally don't know what that means. In one theater, we've got a great out-of-season discount on the lovely matching Sarah Jessica Parker, Matthew Broderick ensemble. One block over on 1985 Avenue, we have Andrew McCarthy and Molly Ringwald. There are special clearance because of the rest of the brat pack is missing. New York City is like bad 1980s leftovers. But no, New York City is real and people have calloused hands and that's reality. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think I'm losing. I think I'm ha- clearly having a breakdown. And I had just, in, as in last week's episode, just moved back from New York after having lived there for five days. And I was trying to get my feet wet in the Boston comedy scene. And I was angry at New York. And I think I was completely wrong about it. Someone actually told me the other day that I remind them of the type of character that would be in Rent. Okay, uh, reason to kill myself number 43. And then I wrote, physically refer to a fake list while on stage. Again, if, in case you're wondering, this is supposed to be a stand-up act that I wrote out, complete with stage direction. Then, Jen, get back to the original point about leaving the house. Microsoft fads. Scary. Martin Luther King speech. Kid, 40 years from now. Daddy, who's that? I don't know. I think he used to work for Bill Gates. I don't know what this means. These are notes to myself. So I was on the subway, and then, Jen, interrupt yourself and say, Ew, wasn't that so obnoxious and so stand-up-y? I won't insult your intelligence like that anymore. I'm going to do a 20-minute movement piece. Don't you love pothead rich kids acting on one idea while in college? Like... How about Hamlet done like the 70s? No, wait, the whole thing as a movement piece. And then I'm going to come back from saying I'm boring myself. And I'm, and I'm going to say, oh, then bring out your book. And then close on your list of theories. Okay, so this was going to be my big closer. One, people like to look smart by knowing something that you don't know. Two, people are lost after they tell you the something they know that you don't because now they are no longer one up on you. Three, you're not allowed to know something other people don't. It makes them dumb, but in effect makes you weird. Four, if you ever know something someone doesn't know and you start to tell them what they don't know, act dumb and like you and like what you know pertains to absolute shit. This keeps you from ever being one up on them. And here. <sighs> this is what I thought was a stand-up act. I never did it. And thank fucking God. Oh, thank you, baby Jesus, for making me born before the internet because I don't think I could have handled it. 
I can barely handle it now. Can we close on a poem that I wrote? Um, guys, this is supposed to make you think. I know you're out there having fun right now. You're listening to this while you're gardening or driving to go see a friend and have a drink. Well, in 1992, I wanted you guys to know about homelessness. And I wrote this on my word processor. <laughs> I also thought I was going to publish a poetry magazine. And thank God I didn't have access to the internet because you know I would put these on the internet. And it's all lowercase. So the homeless man called to him, hey man, you're one of those stars on one of those soap operas. The guy, the man, the stud, carefully but willingly turned around. He lifted his shoulders in a befuddled way as if to say, what? Yeah, you're one of those guys on the TV, you know who I mean. The guy, the man, the stud, oh God, cracked a smile. The wheels in his head, the ones that control his sarcastic comments were fast at work. All he could come up with in that nervous moment was close, the homeless man laughed, persisted for a minute, then turned to the next passerby, wishing them a nice weekend. The strangers say, sorry, in that way. Sorry. They never think of him again. The guy, the man, the stud, is walking down the street now, except this time he has a little bounce to his walk. He keeps his sunglasses on. <laughs> Until next week, have fun. <laughs>